Let me talk you through the two most emotional, stressful months of my sales career. It's no big deal to call a CTO and tell I want to talk. You cannot stand on the sideline and basically wait until the dice rolls itself. It's never going to happen. I don't know if this is going to be on the record or off the record. It's almost like playing with cards, this job. Like, it's like you, you get given a hand of cards and, like, you have to do the best with what, what you have. Someone might have been watching, watching down on me. Me and Jack going into this, when, when he originally told me exactly the same, like, oh, you know, Jack, I've got this idea, you know, what about this? I just, my first thought was, my God, if no, I don't even care if anyone, like, listens to this, you know, if I take one key takeaway from every recording, I'll be such a better rap. This is no big deal, the sales podcast. Welcome back to the No Big Deal podcast with Jack Fox and Jack Nico, and we are really excited this week to have on Jake Jeffries. Now, Jake started his sales career at 12 years old, cutting people's lawns, gardens for five dollars. He then found his way into SaaS, and in 2017, he's been an A ever since working at companies like Branch, Multiverse, and now Medic with Andy White. And if you haven't read the book, I would strongly recommend. But today we're going to be talking about Jake, who sold the largest deal in EMEA at Branch at his time there. And he later that year finished number one globally. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jack. Excited to be here. It's awesome. Nice to have you. Cheers for for joining us, Jake. Jake, is there anything you'd add to that? Anything that we've missed? Anything that's important to you? You write your bio, or anything. Important to me, important to me, no. But I'll tell the end of the uh, the story of what happened when I was twelve years old mowing lawns, and uh, so I'm, I'm trying to make some money to buy a paintball gun. I'm like really trying to rebel against my parents at this time and really get into it. And so I really want this like eight hundred dollar paintball gun. Come up with this plan to mow lawns. I'm gonna borrow my parents' lawnmower, push it around the street, you know, go door to door and start asking people to mow their lawns. I asked the first couple of houses if they would mow the lawn for five dollars eventually someone goes five dollars kid like it's so hot this is phoenix arizona in the summer it's like 40 degrees celsius 115 degrees fahrenheit like oh we'll give you 20 dollars. that's so sweet they gave me some water like pat on the back made me feel really good and i kind of realized like big pain big deal at that moment maybe even intuitively the unfortunate end to that story is the next door that I knocked on literally the next door I'm like hey I'll mow your lawn I know it's really hot I'll mow your lawn for $20 and they went off kit and shut the door in my face <laughs> so I don't know if that's much of a bio but that was definitely an experience um my, my first kind of getting my teeth cut in sales God, you know I would never have done anything like that when I was younger paintball gun yes ask my parents for the money first yes <laughs> too much FIFA for you Jack say again too much FIFA. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Us, so, yeah. Anyway, um, Jake, one question that we always like to start off with, right, is we're going to get into the weeds of how you closed the deal, all the magic that happened, all the things that you did great. But what we want to know is, like, what did this deal mean for you, perhaps, like, after it was closed in your career, in your personal life? What did it do for you? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because I think this and the reason I chose this deal is because it was such a critical turning point in my career as a salesperson. And the first four or so years of my career didn't really have the strong sense of methodology, didn't really have any kind of data driven approach. Fast forward to where we're at in this story. I've moved across from America to the UK. 
I'm working for Andy White, who's leading medic now I'm currently working with. He introduces me to medic, to, you know, the, the sales playbook, the John McMahon world of sales. And I started to really realize that there was a lot more uh, science to the input that you could start to study when it comes to the data. And so for this deal, this deal was the culmination of me analyzing where, you know, we could fit into our best accounts, going out and executing really excellently across, you know, MedPick, influencing the decision criteria, getting to really senior level economic buyers with big pains and big metrics. And so this deal was the first deal that I closed that I think is the first of many for me, which is now kind of the only way that I operate. Call my shot ahead of time, focus on three to four major deals, major accounts. I really feel confident in delivering those when I know that I have strong pain, strong champion connection with the economic buyer, et cetera. And so it really put a lot of confidence kind of back in my in my bucket because then I can go out and feel really full when I'm going out to customers and they can see that in me too. So for me, it was kind of the the, the start of the next part where I stopped being, let's say, uh, uh, consciously incompetent to being kind of more consciously competent and knowing what that takes in order to, to be that. So for me, it was really transformational. And then I went on from this role. Andy excited me about multiverse, about uh, about the, um, the John McMahon world of sales. And so I went on to work for someone who learned directly under John named Jeremy Duggan, Steve McCluskey at multiverse. And so it set up my next job. And it also set up this job here that I'm at now. So for the next kind of five years of my sales career, this has been the theme ever since this um, event, I guess, with that big that big deal that we're going to talk about. So would it be fair to say that you kind of look for, when you're looking for an opportunity for a new job, you look for a place where you know you can go and build strong business cases? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's important that, I mean, the, the most important thing is having something that people want to buy. Uh, having yeah. something that it really means something to them. And that's really going to drive value for them. And that means you have to know what pain you solve. It has to be unique enough so that you can do it in a way that's different, in a way that you can influence the unique decision criteria in a way that, you know, you enjoy talking about. So like for me, I chose Multiverse because of the learning opportunity to really get into the data-driven playbook, use leading indicators, kind of really get into the weeds of it, learned so much in two years. I chose Medic because just love nerding out about sales, like to, with the fellow yeah. here. This is obviously something we, we have in common. Like I've always loved that. I enjoy talking about sales. Medic for me is the common language that overlays all the stuff that I do. So it really made it easy for me to just show up and kind of say, hey, I'm here to help salespeople achieve their best. And that's something that's fun to me. So a little bit of the business case, the opportunity, a little bit of like, where does the energy come from? And I think as well, let's caveat with potentially that our listeners that don't know what medic is, and we've mentioned it quite a lot in the podcast as well. Medic is a sales qualification framework that helps you to qualify out deals quicker and also increase your win percentage, deal size, uh, and the velocity of your deal. And now I think that's a good place to get into the deal that Jake is going to talk to us today, which where he closed one of the largest UK retail e-commerce providers and traditionally at branch when we talked about this deal before we started recording you were targeting financial services companies so this was a fairly left field um, customer that you didn't really have a lot of in europe you had a couple of big ones in the states and you told us it was originally booked by an sdr yeah it was an excellent it was an excellent kind of intro to the story so it's it's funny because 
what kind of prelude to that, what happened was Andy and I dug into the sales velocity equation. And I think this actually comes from Mark Roberge at Predictable, he wrote it in Predictable Revenue, but it's the, the number of opportunities that you have multiplied by the win rate of those opportunities multiplied by the average deal size divided by the days that it takes to close. And now I'll put a number which you call the sales velocity score. What's really important about that, and I think like the, the top tip that I would give to everybody who is either starting out in their territory, starting a new quarter, starting a new year, thinking about how to prioritize their time in terms of their accounts, go out and pull the previous 12 months of data. And what we did was from Salesforce, we pulled the creation date, the close date, whether or not the opportunity was won, the value, and then we use that to create the sales velocity formula. And then I started to layer in industry level insights. So retail and quick serve restaurants quickly rose to the top. Then we started to realize that within retail, actually, it wasn't big X retailers. It was e-commerce, mostly online, that really engaged with us. We were a mobile app product, so that made sense intuitively. But when we reflected that on our customer list in Europe, we had neither of those two sectors. And so the SDR and I that, that I worked with um, really started to target this company as our number one prospect among a few others. And quickly booked a meeting. They were like, hey, why don't you come? The, the response was, why don't you just come down to Manchester and show us your thing? Okay, uh, so me and the SDR go down there. I'm a couple months into my new role in the UK. He's just starting his sales career, coming across from recruiting, went on to be super successful. And actually, for you know, ironic reasons, I suppose, led in the quick serve restaurant market as the secondary place where sales velocity really kind of picked up the baton when it comes to that level of prioritization, had a ton of success with it. And we go up to Manchester and do our first in-person presentation. They're in this like old, disgusting building in the northern quarter. Uh, it was like really, really jagged. It was really, really interesting first meeting because I think what we didn't realize was how much power we had in that room at the time. And by now looking backwards and using Medic as a kind of qualification frame, we know that we were dealing with an abnormally senior level champion, someone who's the group director, you know, they had maybe thousand plus people in their reporting line. Why were they interested then, Jake? Just to interject. Yeah, they were interested specifically. And I think what we found was what we could do as a mobile marketing provider was it kind of summarized by user experience and like data and attribution. So what we didn't realize, and we had landed heavily on the kind of data and attribution side, but what we provided to this person from an e-commerce perspective was the ability for their customer to transact in the app every time they So that means their value per individual, which is the only thing this individual cares about, goes up by two to three X because the app shoppers of this, this um, brand are worth significantly more than the uh, web-based shoppers. And so we started to realize that just by simply looking at those two differences, if app users go to the app, you make 10 pounds. If they go to the web, you make two pounds. We could do the math really quickly to say they did the math in their head to say we'd be reflecting a lot of our traffic in the right direction. So this was something that I don't think we fully understood at the time, to be honest. I think they were interested because we did a lot of personalized out outreach with some screenshots and some flows of their user experience because of the prioritization activities, we were able to really go heavily into reaching out to them. So I think that was also a byproduct of it being a very high priority for us. And so those things come together in the first meeting, that individual starts to paint the picture to us that it's the huge amount of data that is really gonna drive the, the improvement in their campaigns. And so in those first couple of meetings, we were 
really leaning on kind of our um, user experience, really leaning on kind of the flashy and fluffy side of what we can do without asking the critical questions of how actually are you going to monetize this capability? What would you look at from a success metrics criteria and from a kind of implication of the pain criteria? So like, how actually are you going to decide whether or not this is worth it? And so we had um, deals started in maybe July or August. And so we had about three, four months leading up to the holiday season, which was a big kind of stopping point for them also. Had a big couple of months leading up to that where we started to really shape our offering in the way that we could help them from a unique decision criteria perspective. And so that was when it started to really kind of take a turn. And I think that's why they were interested in the first place. I just asked, you know, at the start when you said, um, when you said if you had known how much power you had in the room at the time, things would have been different. And I'm really interested in this because it's something that I struggle with and I'm assuming it's, I'm not alone in this, is that once you do get something that's really bad and you do find, let's call it leverage against the client, I find it really hard to frame how to deliver that to the customer to, to, to give myself that power. So for example, let's say like I know that Jake Jeffries org jake jeffries inc is going under tomorrow unless they buy like this pen like i find that really difficult for, from a personal perspective to be like right then cool let's fucking get the contract out and you better buy this now because otherwise you're kind of i find that tricky so had you known what you knew a few months later how much power you had what what would you have done differently in order to like reframe that and give that to the customer in a way that meant that you could go forward quicker? Yeah, I think I would have been more, I would have been quicker to get to the point of where the important and the meaningful stuff that we do is. So by knowing that these are the top two or three things without getting into the weeds of what it actually is, these are the top two decision criteria, I would have left those two front and center and I would have asked more pointed questions around the consequences of not being able to achieve those things. And we would have gotten to the end result, which we'll probably talk about at some point, but the end result of how much money they were able to make by using what, by using our solution, we really started to just be able to come to the table as a peer and as a negotiating partner and as somebody who, as a person who's building a champion from a senior executive perspective, by communicating your solution in terms of P&L, shareholder value, market penetration and key markets, those type of areas, then you can start to ask those questions earlier on, get more commitment up front. I think the deal would have moved a lot faster because we would have been a lot more aggressive in terms of pricing and in terms of our kind of moving them ahead by focusing. So I'll have to think about that a little bit more, Jack, because I think that's a good question that a lot of people should should have some tips on. Like I think, do you, do you know what's the important thing, just to interrupt you, Jack? Yeah. I think I think me and Jack, we probably lead, I definitely at SalesLoft lead too much with return of investment rather than cost of inaction. Do you know what I mean? And I uh, think yeah. if, if you lead with cost of in, inaction, your I in medic, your implicate pain is so much stronger which drives deal velocity. Yep. And I think that that probably is what drives deal velocity more so than look how much money we're going to, you know, make you, which which you also did on this deal rather than be like, your competitors are doing this, you're going to miss out. Like, look how much money you're losing. It's like the ROI should be, look not how much money you, you gain, look how much money you're losing by not 
buying branch now. 100%. And I think the the power actually, you know, underneath that statement, like to your question, Jack, is the, the power that I would have leveraged is not look how much money you can make and what you can do. It's you're the group e-commerce director. There's a chief officer that you report into. You're responsible for four out of the 10 brands, the leading ones, and you're the biggest now. Your bonus is based on P&L, which is a significant amount. His career is at a critical turning point. He's in his you know, mid-40s to 50s. There's not going to be you know, too many more runs at it. A huge success at this company, which it already is, and it probably would have been without us to be fair to him. I don't want him to hear this and think that I'm trashing him. But I think that if you get into like what we offered him, it was a way to measure the success of what the e-commerce team was doing so that he could report it to the rest of the business. And that was really powerful for our champion because that means he can get in front of the CEO. It's it's a family-run business. So there's a very interesting dynamic amongst the ownership group. And to be in the inner circle of the family, you have to perform really well. And this gave him, a, from a personal win perspective, the power that he needed for that. And that's what drove him to rally the group marketing director, the finance director, the other executives, get the deal done in the end. So I think that's the power I would have focused more on like if I had known it in hindsight. How did you find that out? Yeah. Well, intuitively, I think so. I mean, talking to talking to my champions now, and this is a, a technique that has really come more into a kind of a framework since at the moment, I didn't realize what I was doing. What I am doing now is I'm mapping my champion based on the three whys, why anything, why us, why now. But I'm also looking at the three things that they can be kind of a champion of. They can be a champion of the problem. So like they want to solve the problem. They hate that it's bringing their business down. It's it's costing them money, et cetera. They can be a champion of our company. They love our values. They think we're a great solution partner. We're here to help them, et cetera. Then they can also be a champion of me, like individually. They like Jake. Do they enjoy talking to me? Do we have fun? Like, is it boring? Do they hate dealing with me? You're never going to be able to get past those. And so when you break it down in that way, there's a big personal win kind of that, that threads through that. And so I'm asking people like this individual, what are your personal goals when it comes to work for the next two to three years? And that little question, I think is one of the most powerful early questions that you can ask, because by knowing that if I'm, you know, if, if I want to become a, a CRO, a sales leader, if you're going to pitch me something that helps me level up my skill set or raises my profile in a way that will help me lead there, then that's going to be something that's more appealing to me than something that's just going to make me the same amount of money or do the same kind of the, the, the features and, and bells. And their personal win in this case was they wanted more FaceTime with their C-suite. And more face time, more more reporting. Yeah, they they had the opportunity to really kind of build their personal brand. And this individual went on to be, um, a, a, I think, a chief chief marketing officer was the was the title in the end. So they did move up from e commerce and into um, a, a chief role of another really significant company that's really growing quickly. And so it definitely was. I think this this person was somebody chief digital officer. I just had to look that up in the background. Uh, I think they're the type of person who can see that innovative solution coming together and even before we could. And in hindsight now, I'm trying to be more proactive by understanding what that person might want. Then I can go work backwards to say, what are the unique decision criteria that we can check the box for that we're going to make a difference in? Those decision criteria always will influence some specific problem that they want to solve. 
So there's a reason that that's an important thing to them. Those problems all have associated costs, implicated pains. What happens if you do nothing? But also what happens if you just keep going? Or what happens if you do it wrong? What's the cost of having to do it the wrong way and come back and do it again? And then there's the success metric side. So what happens if you get it right? What's the big opportunity like? And all of those come together without even me mentioning champion and economic buyer, who are your two key stakeholders, because once you find those rest of those things out, you find who the champion and economic buyer are who care about those things the most, and you go talk to them. So what are those three types of champions again? Let me just see if I can remember them. The three types of champions are champion of you, champion of the products, or champion of the problem. Champion of the problem, yep. Champion of us, like the company, and then champion yeah. of you. Yeah, I'm just thinking that's so true. Well, my champions always fit into one of those buckets. It's yeah. I've had, champions of cha- I've had champions who are champions of me as well. Yeah. They're just yeah. Like, they just, really just chose to buy whatever was so at the time because they bought it to me. And I've also had champions who were just totally indifferent to me and we just had a problem that needed fixing and they were just like, me, that's enough. Yeah. It's really helpful too sometimes just to sit back and write down like how much of this, per- what's my problem with this person? So for example, maybe take that back a second. If you run into a challenge, I want my champion to host a architecture workshop where we bring together a couple of other key stakeholders and they have to kind of invest some of their capital to do it and they don't want to do it. Are they not a champion of the problem? Do they not think that this is important enough to solve? Do they not like us? Is it our company? Do they have a competitor in mind? Do they have a different set of solutions? Do they hate me? Is it me? Um, And even if it's not about hating you, it's not personal, but it's more they don't know you. They don't think that you've been providing enough value to them. Maybe you haven't been providing enough direct value to them. That makes them think of you as a salesperson, not a business partner. So those are moments in the deal when you can reevaluate using those criteria to say, if you're not a champion of the problem, we need to implicate the pain more. We need to why anything. If you're not a champion of our company, then you don't understand what we can uniquely provide in terms of decision criteria and metrics and solutions to those pain in a way that you understand. So we need to go back to the drawing board and reframe that message. If you're not a champion of me, then that means you need to get to know me a little bit, or I need to spend my time to add value to you. I'm clearly not doing my end of the bargain by doing those things besides, you know, being transactional deal focused. Maybe I am being too salesy. And so those are good ways uh, for me, at least to kind of simplify things to say, what am I doing? What do I need to prioritize? And then I have this problem where I try to decide if I try have to decide what I'm doing every day, like before the day starts, like in the morning, I'm just so lost when it comes to working through every day. My operating rhythm has to be really clean. So I use those checkpoints to say, okay, well, tomorrow, what am I going to do? I'm going to make Jack a better champion of the problem by thinking about what the implications of my security architecture solution are going to have on his role as a chief information security officer. And I'm going to share him an interesting podcast that I found a snippet of that I thought he might like because it's from another guy who's from the UK. Something simple like that, and you can go back and really just start to make a prioritized list of actions based on you know where you're achieving the qualification criteria, in this case for champion, but it's also true for all the rest of the letters. Just thinking about how much sales careers change when we slow down and deal with less deals and are able to focus on things like that. Like when you're able to stop and think like, what's the nuance here that I need to change? Like, what- Shit, what, like what what energy do i need to shift that yeah. company xyz today instead of being like i need to get this now i need to get that i need to get this bit of admin done because that's when you're just like you're not doing any good selling you're just getting, taking it, it gives you something to do too because it, it makes you it makes you realize that you don't have to do everything 
first of all. You don't have to close every deal. Your close rate, and that's one of the beauties of doing the sales velocity equation, is the memory that you are going to lose 80, 60%, whatever the average close rate is, you're going to lose a good majority of the deals that you're working on. So make sure that you're focused on the right ones that are well-qualified so that once you exit that stage two, stage three, then you'll be able to have a high likelihood that you will close them. By working less deals, uh, I have this thing on Friday that I do two and a half hours of a washdown. So Friday afternoon, never any meetings, hate having meetings on Friday afternoon when I'm wrapping up. I'll go through and write down, there's maybe... 16 or 17 different data points, how many meetings I'm having, how many new business meetings, did they convert? What are the people that were in those, et cetera, in my opportunities? How many people did I meet this week? How many of them were new? Things like that. Just to start to take a look week over week. And I spend the two hours just kind of clicking through, writing down numbers, and it feels very manual and not very scalable. And it's not very analytical, really. But what it does is it gives me the mental space to go through those opportunities and say, I'm working four or five opportunities. This quarter, if I close two, I'll hit my number and exceed it. So I only need to pick the best two and double down on them. So I can use that weekly analysis to say by week six out of a 13-week quarter, it's very unlikely I'm going to close a deal that I haven't met the EB, let's say. So if I'm not engaged with the economic buyer by week six, and I haven't met more than three people in an opportunity, you know, whatever my data is telling me, that weekly washdown is a really great way to go back next week and say, okay, I can disqualify that or I can maybe move it to next quarter and I can give myself more time and get, make a better deal happen, do the right things. And then on those two deals that I do want to close, I can go back and say, okay, are they a champion of me? Are they a champion? And yeah. I can start with uh, Stop the gap. Yeah. Turn the gap and be like, I'm going to influence that on Monday morning and you can think about it and digest it and create yeah, that Friday planning, I think just giving the space and I have to shout out like Steve McCluskey, Jeremy Duggan, the multiverse team who kind of taught me that slowing down, take the Friday afternoon to really plan. That's the way that, you know, the the Premier League level, the Champions League levels, players of our game in sales, like that's the level that they're operating at. They are not sprinting every day to follow up with opportunities, to make more calls, to book an unlimited amount of really shitty trash new business meetings. They want a small number of really excellent high level new business meetings. They want the eight meetings that you have per week to be not 15 meetings, eight really good ones, prep calls, prep before, show up with follow-ups, time to deliver the message. You've thought about what the unique thing that you can add to that meeting is, and you're progressing your opportunities forward in kind of a purposeful way. So being more purposeful and thinking about how what you do turns into something later on, I think that's what that's what Medic gave me, is like understanding how that what I do now matters in December. And I can map all my way back to it where in my first five years of your sales career, I don't know how many of us have felt like this, but you kind of just feel like you're doing stuff and deals come in and you kind of close some and some are weird. And then you start to realize that looking back, they weren't that weird. You just didn't know how to spot the, the trends. I think what's also critical about this and like is great to do it on your own as well, but running this past other peers has been like, how did I not so, think of that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just for 15 minutes to walk through, you know, your medic scoring, like um, Scott talked about, and to be like, I would ask that question to unlock that M2. And I'm like, that's a great question to ask yeah. in the next call. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best. as well. When someone else asks you about a problem in their deal, all of a sudden you're like, fucking. <laughs> you're like, like, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do this? And they're like, oh, go on. Yeah. Jack with the telescope. Yeah. yeah. The sky. <laughs> Guys, trust me, the sun is at the center. Just trust me. 
we talk pretty intent intensely there about like uh sales and things to make you effective but I've, something to touch on as well is something bad happened to you jake <laughs> before you went into this face-to-face yes. meeting with decision makers etc this is my problem as an american um this is just what i get maybe what i what we deserve after all of those years of just being assholes um but what happened funny part funny part of this deal I'm headed up to Manchester. I'm on the train. Train is a little bit late. I'm going up to meet uh, our champion who introduced the group finance directors, like effectively the CFO um, at the time. And so this was our kind of our EB meeting because our champion needed financial approval from the CFO, even though he wasn't necessarily involved in the, the solution itself. And so we were treating it as an EB meeting, had it prepped. My boss was up there. Andy was up there. We had all the stuff going on. And so right before... I'm a little bit late on the train, start running from the station up from Manchester station to Northern quarter. There's a little like side street that you have to cut through. And I was maybe two months in the UK at this point. No, maybe like four or five months at this point, but still I looked this direction because cars drive on the right side of the road. Right? No, it was this direction that a bicycle came. Thank the Lord. It wasn't a lorry came and smashed me and knocked me over and it knocked me over. I had my headphones on, headphones went flying, traffic stopped. It was like a ooh type of moment. <laughs> Everyone was like, e, the bicyclist was like so mad screaming at me. I was like, sorry, dude, I really have to go. I cannot stand here to apologize to you. Uh, actually still on my headphones, the scene throw on my desk, on my headphones, I still have a big scratch. <laughs> That's still kind of like a scar from this deal because um, the headphones just went flying and skidding down the street. So it's like a big scratch on my over ear headphones. Um, went in, did the presentation. Everything seemed fine. Like it was fine to me. I don't know. I do remember going on the train back and having a like a like I was just asleep. But then I just woke up and the train was in London. So there was definitely something happening like in my brain. And then like a month and a half later, after the deal had been signed, we were having like some drinks for the implementation team. And one of the lead engineers of the team told me that the champion of the meeting came out of the meeting and was like, Jake was being really weird. And he was really making us like uncomfortable. And he kind of just kept like losing track of what was happening. <laughs> he asked him if he had saw if he had seen me today. And then he was like, I don't know was he high? Like, was he? And I have no idea what they must have thought. In hindsight, he never mentioned this to my face. It was just the lead engineer who was just like a Crocs to work kind of guy. I didn't really care. And so he told me this. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. I told him a story about how I got smashed by the bicycle. And he was like, yeah, that's definitely lines up. And so later we had to resolve that. But thankfully, that was the worst thing that happened that day. It wasn't that they told me that they weren't, they weren't going to do anything. Yeah, I love that. That's the salesperson's perception, is it? Yeah, I got smashed by a bike, pretty concussed, but at least I didn't lose the deal. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would have been that would have been heart wrenching. Although this was still pre, um, so this was actually you know kind of the end of the year. Later on, this was 2019, so we go into 2020, and so big turning point of this deal was when COVID came around, and every company, as they did freaked out and thought there's no way we're going to continue operating we're going to lay off half of our staff no one's going to spend any money and it turned out that this company did really really well during the e-commerce boom they saw that they could switch their supply from they were famous for kind of pivoting their factories from like nighttime like going out wear to like pajamas and like pajama stuff and they ended up selling tons and tons and tons of that so i got a call uh like october or sorry uh, march 14th or so 
that was like, hey, Jake, we're shutting down. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm really sorry. The deal's off the table. This was an end of quarter for March deal. It was slated. It was like basically out for signature, done all the red lines. Like it was fully done. It was absolutely devastating. Um, probably cried in my room a little bit, but we we moved on from it because in a couple of weeks, I literally just got this miraculous phone call of like, hey, Jake, I'm really sorry. I'm sure you had a really bad couple of weeks. But actually, our sales are like up 40% and we really need your thing like right now. So is there any way you could get the team down next week, we'll get the contract signed, whatever. And so I actually literally like sent the contract. I wanted to print the contract and bring it out for them to sign to, with the team just for funsies. But they were like, no, we have to do a DocuSign. So I sent it on the train, signed the contract on the way with the team to go and do the implementation. And oh, so that is, that is rock and roll, it, right? the next week it ended up being like a whole, it ended up being like a whole thing. It was a really fun deal just because it had so many different like tops and turns. And this was the land deal that ended up turning into about three or four months later, once it kind of expanded to the full group. Uh, this was like the landing of the pilot, I guess you could say, that led to the biggest deal that we had closed in Europe uh, up until I think pretty recently. Um, the SDR who I used to work with actually beat my record, which I really love. Um, but that took him a while. So I still feel good about that. And yeah, it was, uh, it was good because I think it just kind of redefined what, I mean, as a region, I saw how, you know, if you bring in a big deal as a salesperson, you're supporting the people around you, like the people around you who, who helped me so much throughout the process, sales engineers, marketing, leadership, et cetera. But you're really, you know, you take a lot of the credit, you see yourself in the spotlight a lot, but actually what you're doing is helping to push the company forward. And so we were a 20 person team in Europe. We closed this landmark customer. I turned around and started just kind of copy pasting the same deal with other e-commerce companies. Do you want to follow the example of the best person in the best company in your region, seeing, you know, results up to, and the final metric that we landed on for this customer was about 340,000 pounds per hour that they were running campaigns with our solution in increased revenue. So from a profit perspective, it was in the kind of 70 to 80,000 pounds per hour of additional profit, just running these campaigns by paying us, you know, what they did. And so it turned out to be really ROI positive for them. And we could turn that result around and kind of make it the blueprint for our region going forward. And I think that whole story, starting with just genuinely looking at sales velocity to see which was the best and where we should focus our time, all the way up to, we know the unique decision criteria, how we can engage with the right champions with strongly implicated pain in this kind of regional space, and then go out and do that, you know, four or five more times. It just turned out to be a really great formula for success. Uh, and that's kind of what I was always after is, what is the you know best path to success? What is the way that you can kind of create a scalable and repeatable process so that you can deliver you know big revenue numbers? You're incredibly competent, you know, and this is something that we all talked about together off air and me and Jack talk about a lot, you know, the domino effect and mm -hmm. gaining momentum within one region. What I'd love to understand though, Jake, is like what in hindsight, when you looked at this deal, did you think I did that really well? The thing that went the best for us is so taking apart, removing the the kind of choosing the prioritization because I think that was the thing that that was the number one tip that I took with me that I still use to this day is using sales velocity for prioritization. The thing that we executed really well on was influencing the decision criteria. And so for anybody um, who doesn't know MedPick, or maybe you do and you're interested, maybe I'll just take this moment to say if you've listened to this far in the podcast. And you email me. I love breaking rules. If you email me, I will give you, don't tell Andy, 
free access to the MedPick Masterclass so you can check it out. We have great training on how to do this specifically. So if you listen to this part of the podcast, I'm never going to mention this to Andy and I hope he doesn't listen to it. But if you email me, I will do it and I will not tell anyone and you can have free access to the course and just check it out because it's been so transformational for how I do what I do in influencing decision criteria to win deals. That's what we did really well. We knew that the competitors who we were up against didn't have the ability to route the user experience and to analyze the data at the same time. So a solution that did those two things, because both of those were critically important to the kind of outcome that we wanted to drive, increasing conversion rates and using data to fill the um, the kind of automated ad campaigns, we had no competition. And so by getting our champion to see that that was something that he really needed because he had a problem routing people to the right place and getting data to support those ad models, that getting everyone on side of just those two things together meant that we were definitely going to win the deal. We couldn't not win the deal. They were going to do, you know, choose us or choose nothing. And it meant that we had a really clear framework to drive metrics, implicate the pain, show them ultimately why we are the right solution for that. So that was the thing that I think we did really well. And I would encourage all salespeople listening to this to think about your different decision criteria. What does your solution do compared to your competitors or do nothing that you know for sure that if the customer has these two, three things on the top of their tender list, you are going to win that deal and work backwards from there. How can you get them on side with just those two things instead of the table stakes stuff, things that everyone can do instead of things that are cool and flashy, maybe they do or they, they, they don't, they don't care about. Find out what those two, two, three things are for your company and then for the people you want to sell to and just focus on them. And that will increase the amount of deals that you win really significantly because people who agree with you, you'll win the deal. If they don't agree with you, you'll qualify them out really early. So you won't spend much time there. Win, win. I was going to say you're the most fluent uh, of any salesperson I've ever spoken to in, in medic. Nice. This. You can go and work there, Jake. Yeah, well, thank God, Jack. Yeah, thank God, Jack. That would have been real. That would have been real embarrassing. I, I can say it is funny though, because I find this like selling sales excellence to salespeople. Um, at other companies, you know, you're doing a demo, you have a sales engineer, the product. Like, I kind of am the demo for a lot of the people that yeah, I'm yeah. with. And I'm sure at Sales Loft, you kind of see this too. You you get sales leaders to ask you, like, so do you actually do you actually use it? Does it actually yeah. help you? And so I definitely have to make medic a part of my day-to-day, -day, uh, every day, all the time, really, in order to make that work. But for me, as a common language, I've never seen something that's so comprehensive and makes sales so simple. I think that's the hardest part for all of us is sales is really complicated. It's unlimited. It's 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 infinite. It's never yeah, ending. Yeah. But medic gives you a common language to speak with and really start to use to analyze first what should I be doing? Are these deals working? So qualification, then methodology, how actually do I do these things, engage with the champion, economic buyers, metrics, et cetera, and then measurement. So like, do we measure our performance based on it? Do I measure how good I am at building champions? Do I measure how much I'm engaged with economic buyers at certain stages in the deal? And so at Medic, you know, the company, now what we do is really help people set up those best practices to be able to think about like going from qualification through to methodology, all the way through to performance measurement with Medic being the kind of common language that gates all of those things, it just makes it easy for salespeople because we're all crazy. We're all a little complicated. 
we got stuff going on. And, you know, some of us love to talk. Some of us are weirdly introverted. And so Medic just gives a scalable kind of repeatable framework for all those different personality types and different people to go into you know, cybersecurity without knowing anything about cybersecurity yeah. and make million dollar deals happen. So little dog in the back. Name, um, we're almost at time now, Jake, and I want to wrap up with like, I think we all know what skills make you great. So I'm going to ask a different question. Okay. What is your favorite sales memory? Ooh, man, I ruined the story at the beginning. Oh no, that's a great one for this answer. All right. Let me think again. Favorite sales memory. So I'll talk about maybe the moment I got into real B2B sales, like enterprise sales. Um, I was living in Denver at the time and I was in recruiting, doing tech recruiting for software engineers. I had done that kind of full time while I was in college. Then I moved out to Denver with that company. Really great recruiting agency uh, called Talent Solvers. They do a lot of really awesome stuff. But <laughs> I, uh, I went to go see a guy who became my first sales boss. And I started out as an SDR working on his sales team, a company called Full Contact. His name is Andrew Voislavic. He's now actually a really great enablement leader, but he was doing a talk on the Predictable Revenue, the book by Mark Roberts. My first boss made me read the book because we were thinking about scaling out our go-to-market business. We went to go see a talk by this guy at Denver Startup Week, went up, shook hands with him, talked to him for a little bit, realized that he kind of opened my mind up to the the art and science of selling. He was from Miller Hyman background. So he knew like economic buyer, the blue sheets. I don't know if you've heard all of that kind of old school methodology stuff, but he introduced me to how big the world was when it comes to selling. And so I met him maybe two or three more times in Denver. And then shortly after realized that like recruiting was just not something that I could stick with long-term. And so I got into sales as a result of just reading that book and showing up to that talk. Who knows? I could have been in recruiting probably would have been burned out of recruiting by now, but it, um, it was definitely a memory that like, for me, it was the first introduction to like, oh, selling can be a real long-term career. And this is something that, you know, despite it being the, probably the most popular profession in the world by numbers is the least talked about in university or as a track for, you know, individuals. So that was, a, that was one of my favorite, favorite memories from that, despite, you know, a couple of other things. That is actually such a good like conclusion, isn't it? At no point at anyone at school when they give you career advice, a university goes, why don't you just go with the biggest, you know, the popular career in the entire world, which is sales. Would you like training on that? It's like a hushed, it's like a dirty. Yeah, it, isn't it? And weird. everybody kind of goes through it via something like recruiting or door to door or like a grad a, a grad job that they got while they were like looking for work. And you're like, oh yeah, here I am 10 minutes later, still looking for work. So 10 years later, still looking for work. You're like 10 years deep in sales. Yeah, 100%. It's like, I have an aspiration to someday kind of start a program that will help people who have no kind of like university background, people who come from underprivileged place to be able to just start their career in sales. I, to me, it blows my mind that you can be in a situation where, you know, at under 30 years old, few years of experience, less than 10 years of experience, you can make 300 to 500,000 to up to a million pounds if you find the right comp plan, realistically, 100 to 200,000 pounds, which absolutely everybody would be happy with. You can do that with no experience. You can do that with no college degree. You can do that with hardly any skills. You just have to understand how you just have to understand these basic points. I can teach a robot how to use medic and we're planning to teach a robot AI how to use medic so that we can help our salespeople do these things. But 
it's going to be able to give, I guess, that background for, you know, it's my aspiration to be able to give people who don't have access to the university system or maybe don't think it's for them to realize how easy it is to get a career in sales and to start up. And so I'm hoping that, you know, our masterclass starts to take that form in some at some point to kind of a sales academy offering or something that will help people, because I think it's so underrated as a career path when you start to stack up your other options in terms of earning potential and lifestyle. It's fantastic. I mean, yeah. it's, I love it, so. Oh my God, honestly, you're speaking to me seven years ago. Like I bumped into Jack at a conference when I was 27 and I didn't have a clue what sales was. I didn't know. I was like, what the hell? And then now four years later, whatever. I'm, I love it. I'm obsessed. Like, I didn't know it was a thing. And now I'm just like, I love it. It sounds podcast, mate. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Jake. That was amazing. And we'll uh, finish the recording.